There is a reason why when you get a product that needs assembly, whether it's a piece of furniture or a new gas grill, something, you put it together. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one. The first attempt is always by intuition. You just kind of open the box and start assembling things. And almost without fail, in my experience, you get to that place where it's like, oh, that part should have been put between these two parts that are already assembled and undoing it and redoing it, which is kind of fun, and it's a nice little endeavor if you're just putting furniture together. The stakes get higher, though, if you get instructions from your doctor and you get a prescription at the pharmacy, and they say, take this medicine, take it this way, depending upon the severity of your condition and the the drugs that you're supposed to be taking and what could happen, not following those instructions could have some really, really severe consequences. In Matthew's Gospel, we read one of the most familiar and full teachings of Jesus just in one sitting, in one talk. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in this section, Jesus is giving this big overview of what it's like to be people of God. Starts off with, you know, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted, who are the peacemakers. Then he gives a lot of instructions on various ways that we're supposed to be living, our attitudes and our actions and how we relate to one another. And I wanted to, I wanted to run through just in bullet points some of the things that topics that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So just track with me with this and then I'll let you know why I want to do this. Some of the topics include be happy when you're mocked and people say bad things about you. Let your good deeds shine for everyone to see. Cultivate internal righteousness, not just external rule following. Control your anger. Don't think of other people in a judging manner. Don't worship God if you have a broken relationship with someone else. First go fix that relationship and then come and worship God. Don't lust after others sexually. Guard your eyes and guard your hearts. Protect and guard the sanctity of marriage. Don't make rash vows or promises that you may not be able to keep. Instead of taking revenge when you're wrong, go serve the person who hurt you. Don't do good things for other people to see so that you'll be noticed and get credit for them. Instead, do good things in secret where no one else sees so God will see it and get the credit for it. Don't ramble in your prayers, but follow a pattern that talks about God's kingdom, talks about the needs we have and how God is going to keep and empower us. Forgive people who sin against you. Be careful what you watch. Don't try to serve God in money. Don't worry about things. Trust in God. Watch out for people who speak well but who don't really demonstrate faith in their actions. And we could go on and on about that passage called the Sermon on the Mount of the instructions that that Jesus gives to us about how to live as God's people. But at the conclusion of the talk, this is where I want to really camp. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 7. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, go to events, first free, and all the scriptures I'll be touching on will be there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. This is how Jesus wraps up this talk we call the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like the person who builds his house on the sand. When the rains and floods come, and the wind beats against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Someone once said, we design a building from the roof down, but we build it from the ground up. 
We design a building from the roof down. We talk to architects. We talk to uh, designers, and we design everything that's going to happen up here. But we build it starting down here, don't we? We build it at that foundation. And if we, if we skimp or cut corners on that foundation, it doesn't matter what's built above it. It's not going to be a happy ending. You don't see a foundation, but it's the most critical part of the building, isn't it, in many ways. Without it, even the most elaborate, impressive-looking building won't last. What Jesus is saying here is obeying God's teaching, that is listening and hearing what God wants us to hear, and then doing it, putting into practice, applying what we're hearing, is the foundation of everything else in life. It's the foundation of everything. And Jesus draws this contrast between those who are listening and doing it and listening and not doing it. And he, he paints the picture of like two identical houses being built or two identical buildings being built. And if you look in the real estate section, maybe you would see here are two houses for sale in your community, and this is the description of these two houses that are identical. The floor plan encompasses four spacious bedrooms with plenty of room for study, sleep, and storage, three luxurious bedrooms and sleek, stylish kitchen that flows through the dining room to a private rear patio. The master bedroom ensures that parents have a private space where they can enjoy the view. This house screams designer, and it reflects the personality of taste of those who are accustomed to the best quality and finishes in their lifestyle. It's perfect for a family or as a holiday retreat, it's ideally positioned with the proximity to beaches, cafes, restaurants, shopping centers, selection of premier schools. You looked at two houses, and that was a description of the, and they're identical, and they're amazing, and they're where you'd want to live. But the difference, there was one difference in these two houses, and it wasn't anything that you saw from the floor up, it was the foundation, what was not seen. One of these houses is built anchored into bedrock. The other is built on sand that shifts and it's light and fluffy and airy and doesn't hold. Jesus said that when we hear God's word and put them into practice, when we obey, we're building our house on a solid foundation. He had just instructed his followers about these kingdom priorities. And now he's saying, here's where the rubber meets the road. Are you actually going to put them into practice? Another similarity between these two homes is they have storms that come. They both are affected by storms, floodwaters, winds, and rain beat against the house, and they expose the poor foundation of the house that's not built on obedience. And these storms for us in our own lives can be things like loss, sin, brokenness, testing, setbacks, failures, personal injury, loss, illness, those kinds of things, they reveal the truth of what our foundation is. They expose how well our lives are anchored into the bedrock of obedience to God. In 2009 in China, there was a 13-story building that just fell over. Uh, I've got some picture of it there. I mean, it just fell over intact. And it fell over intact after they studied it because they didn't do the foundation work right. The beautiful building and everything else in it was fine, but they didn't build the foundation. A member of the investigative team said no builder with basic construction knowledge would have made that error in the foundation. Now, here's the deal. That's my life. That's my life. Uh, that's my life when I'm not walking and following the plan that God wants for me. 
in big, big ways sometimes that are really ca- catastrophic failure. And it's also my life in little ways every day when I choose to soothe my own pain, when I choose to take shortcuts, when I choose to live for myself, when I choose to avoid God's plan, when I harbor sin in my heart. Uh, that's my life at any given moment. When I'm, see, I think that's one of the differences. This metaphor kind of uh, breaks from building metaphor because most of us, when you build a house, it has one foundation and that stays. This is kind of a living foundation. Each day, maybe even each moment, I'm choosing and I'm living by faith. And the question before me is, am I putting my foundation and trust in the bedrock, which is Christ? So the question for today is, why obey? The first reason we obey is because obedience builds a strong foundation that stands against the storms of life. Obedience builds a strong foundation for us that stands against the storms of life. Next, next let's look at a few verses from 1 John chapter uh, 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments. Keep that in mind. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this section reflects a common theme. If you read the Gospel of John, if you read his epistles, John blends three things, faith, obedience, and love. Faith, obedience, and love. They just keep coming up every time John's writing. And faith, obedience, and love in the life of a Christian are an unstoppable spiritual force. I mean, if, we, if, we're, if we're obeying God, if we're loving, if we're, if we're believing Him, it's as though we can do anything. And that's why it's a victory that overcomes the world, he says here. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, It says that knowing God in an ongoing basis is in some way dependent upon obeying him. We actually know more of God as we obey him more. For some of us, that's why maybe we don't know the deep things of God. We've yet to obey those initial things of God that God's directing us to. But the more we know him, the more we believe him, the more we obey, the more we know him. It's just this continual cycle that John writes about. So how is loving God expressed in keeping his commandments? And what commandments is he talking about here? Let's look at Romans chapter 13 and see how Paul can help us here. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of the law. This is a powerful uh, passage for us when we talk about obedience because one of the things we talk about or think about when we come to obedience is, is this a bunch of rules? Is it do this and don't do this? Well, yes, but it's not only that. In fact, what Paul says here is all of those rules of don't murder, don't steal, don't do this or do this, are summed up in the command to love one another. And as we see in 1 John chapter 5, love God when we obey him. So as we're, because as I'm obeying God in these areas, I'm loving 
the people around me. And as I'm loving the people around me, I'm not murdering, I'm not lying. I'm doing those things flow down the same stream, I guess we could say. And this fits with what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 through 7 as well. All of the commands of Scripture are pointing towards this relationship with God, this obedience that we have with God and knowing Him and loving other people. And it's not just keeping the outward commandments, although it is keeping those commandments, but there's a deeper calling, a heart-level obedience that's reflected in our surrender to God. It's, it's, when we love God, it's expressed in avoiding sin. But not just avoiding sin because there's a rule book that says I need to avoid sin, but avoiding sin because I love God. So when that temptation comes to soothe your own pain by drinking too much or looking at pornography on your computer or eating the rest of that pie in the refrigerator after everyone goes to bed at night, whatever it is that you do to soothe your own soul, the question isn't, am I going to do this or not? The question is, am I loving God? Am I doing what's best in my relationship with God and in my relationship with other people? It's expressed in caring for other people. It's expressed in not gossiping about people, in serving one another. It's expressed in witnessing to people about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. I think this is a good point to talk about how we interact with sin in our lives as Christians. And I'm going to say this carefully, so try to catch all this, because if you miss a part, it may sound really, really off, and I don't want to get a lot of emails this week about it, but we'll talk if we need to. I talk to so many people when they come in for counseling or just for pastoral visit, and they're really frustrated because yet again they sinned in a certain area. Maybe it's an area that they've been trying to get victory over for years, and they just keep failing in that area. And they come in, and I sinned again. I messed up again. What a total loser I am. And the predicament is so for some of them, they actually have this expectation, maybe it's not expressed, that, that they shouldn't sin, that they actually can not sin, that if the problem is that they sinned again. And how do they stop doing that? And I talk to them, and I'm like, well, there are two things I really want to stress in that, in that situation. One is, I want you to not sin again in that area. And it's best to strive to not sin in that area. But you're a sinner. And the fact that you're coming and talking to me as your pastor, and you're broken about your sin, and you're feeling terrible that you actually did this again and maybe hurt your wife or kids or spouse, you lost your temper again, or you lied again, you did something that was a sin I want you to know you're obeying right now. Part of obedience is I feel horrible when I sin against this God. I feel horrible when I violate the love that I have for God and what he's given to me. And so in the very act of feeling horrible and guilty about it is following a path of repentance, following a path of obedience. Are you with me on that? It's too often. It's as though I shouldn't sin anymore. And I hope you won't. We're going to talk a little bit more in in a few minutes about how we are empowered actually to live a holy life. But it's unrealistic to think this side of heaven, I'm not going to sin. Now, let me put a little asterisk by that. There still may be very real consequences with that sin. Even if you feel horrible and there's obedience and you follow up and you repent and you confess, there still might be consequences that you have to face. And sometimes those consequences can be very real. But what I end up talking to people about is 
I want you to not sin. I, I, my prayer is you won't sin in this area anymore. But more than that, I want your heart to be soft before God so the Holy Spirit can walk you in a path of obedience and repentance and restoration when you do sin. The commands and expectations put on believers, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, are not burdensome. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit well sometimes, because sometimes obedience feels like a burden. To not lash out and judge this person who just hurt me feels really, really hard in that moment. But the verses talk about it not being a burden, not because it's easy. Obedience isn't easy. And obedience does not preclude us from suffering. That's important, too. We'll touch on that in a moment. But the reason that it's not a burden is because it comes with a victory that is already ours in Christ. That's that 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's the victory that overcomes the world. As we obey, it's kind of like the hard, the hard task of studying for an exam. The burden of studying for an exam doesn't feel like a burden when you get an A on the test. The burden of doing whatever your doctor or physical therapist says you need to do in order to recover from this illness doesn't feel like a burden. It does in the moment, but doesn't feel like a burden once you're healthy and can re-engage in your lifestyle as normal. Our obedience to God isn't a burden because it's not a weight that keeps us from heaven. Instead, we have the Holy Spirit who fills us and who indwells us. And there are some Christians who go so far the other way to say, well, we can't ever do anything right. There's never ever a moment in our, time, in our lives that we can ever obey. And I, I don't know. I think the, the New Testament teaches that we're called to be holy because God's holy. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the life that God's called us to be. So I would like to think that there might be a second of a day when I could be connected to the power of the Holy Spirit and living in the Holy Spirit and actually obeying and walking in the path that God wants me to walk. And if I could put two of those seconds together, I'll have two seconds. If I could put 60 of them together, I'll have a minute. And, and so we actually have been empowered to live in an obedient way, not because we can do it on our own. That gets back to my earlier point, because I'm a sinner and that old man fights in me and I'm going to mess up. But the power of the Holy Spirit has been given to us to help us walk in a way that follows after obedience to Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, Moses, when he was talking about all the requirements that God had for the people of Israel, said this, this command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you, and it is not beyond your reach. Not because you can do it, but because we have a God who keeps his promises. And on this side of Calvary, God has promised and delivered on his promise of giving us the Holy Spirit to help us walk in obedience. So why obey? Because obedience demonstrates our love for God. Obedience demonstrates that we love God. It's also to our benefit to obey God. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 13 says, Take hold of my instructions, don't let them go. Guard them, for they are the key to life. The key to life is to obey and follow these instructions that God gives to you. Much like a child obeying a wise parent, we avoid many lessons learned the hard way if we live for God like God's instructed us. I don't know about you, but I have way too many scars in my own life and my own heart 
from knowing full well what God would have me to do and choosing to do something different. It's not a matter of knowing. In fact, most of us probably, if you've been in church at all, could get through the rest of life without learning anything new about God. For me, it's just trying to live in obedience to what I already know. I've got my hands full just following in obedience to what I already know. Some verses in the Bible seem to talk about a conditional promise or a conditional God's love being conditional on our obedience, you might say. A couple examples, there are many, but Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23, this is what I told them, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything I say and all will be well. Deuteronomy chapter 4, so remember this and keep it firmly in mind, the Lord is God both in heaven and on earth and there is no other. If you obey all the decrees and commands I'm giving you today, all will be well with you and your children. I'm giving you these instructions so you will enjoy a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. These conditional statements, especially in the Old Testament we find them, doesn't really mean, if you look at the totality of what Scripture teach, that if, if the Old Testament people of Israel failed to obey, then God was like, all right, I'm out of here. I can't be your God anymore. You've totally eliminated the, my ability to be your God well, then he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? So, in fact, the rest of the Old Testament narrative shows that when God's people disobeyed, they paid a price for that disobedience, but God is always going to be faithful to himself, and in his faithfulness, he maintained a remnant of those who are faithful, and he builds his character and his reputation and his cause even in spite of our disobedience. So it's not that those conditional statements mean nothing, I think the better way to say them is how we would experience today is that life for us is much better when we obey God. When we are walking in obedience with who God is, with what he's called us to do in our attitudes and our actions and in our words, things tend to go better for us. Not pain-free, not without suffering, but in the end, we tend to experience the blessings and fullness of God's presence when we walk in obedience with him. Let's just say you're lost in the forest and you're wandering around and you run into a park ranger and the park ranger says, oh, here's the way to get out of the forest and points out the path that you need to get on to get out of the forest. Then it becomes your choice whether you're going to actually follow that ranger's instructions who knows how to get out of the forest or not. And way too often we choose to not. So why do we obey? Because obedience is a pathway to experience God's blessing and favor. Not in an expected way, not always in the way we want it or way we would look at it, but always we're in a better place when we're obeying God. The next verse moves us from that thought to what I believe is probably the most critical element of the question, why obey, as we try to answer this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 20. Those who listen to instruction will prosper. Those who trust in the Lord will be joyful. Those who listen to instruction will prosper. Those who trust in the Lord will be joyful. I love that verse for this message because I think there's a question behind why obey. I think lying behind the question of why obey is the question why trust? Why trust? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. 
When you seek his will, he's going to show you. So if God shows you, what's the question then? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust that what God's showing you is actually the best way? And then follow it? There are different kinds of trust. Experts distinguish between what's called calculus-based trust and identification-based trust. Calculus-based trust is the kind of trust that weighs whether the other person has something that they're going to get out of this. Calculus-based trust is the kind of trust you have when you're driving down the interstate. You trust that everyone else is going to stay in their lane. Not because you know them all. That might make it harder. It's not because you know them and trust them. It's because you just trust they probably don't want to end up in an accident today either. They're probably on this highway because they want to get to a destination. So we have a calculus-based trust that everyone on the interstate intends to get to their destination and not get in a wreck. No relationship involved in that at all. Identification-based trust shares the values and the purpose and the goal. I trust you to be honest with me because you value me in our relationship. This is the kind of trust we need in marriages and families and in our community here. I trust you because I believe that you have my best interest at heart. That's identification-based trust. Too often, we're trying to live this life of faith on a calculus-based trust. We believe God, everyone else is going to stay in their lanes because everyone else wants to get this thing over, right? It's an identification-based trust. And the real question is, do I believe fully? Do I know and believe that this God who I worship, who I follow, has my best interest at heart? And even if the path before me is a painful path and is not the path I have and there's disappointment and there's grief on it, that I'm going to stay on this path because I know ultimately it's the best path for me. That's the identification-based trust that we need. If you don't trust God... If you don't trust God, then all of this is just going to be for naught. If we don't trust that this one who created us actually has a plan, and it's the best plan for us. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? When Satan tempted Eve, he undermined her trust in God. Did God really say that? Don't really trust him. He's got another agenda for you. And for obedience to be true, a person has to have the right to command something and a way to communicate it. Those are the two things that need to be true. The right to communicate it and a way to communicate it. God is the Lord of all, and he's given us his revelation in Scripture. So obeying and trusting in God is not easy, but it's what we're called to do. By the way, we suffer when we are tempted and when we obey. It's a natural part of overcoming temptation. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, We suffer when we are tempted. One theologian said this, and I really love it. uh, The only way to know the full weight of temptation is to never give in to it. The only way to know the full weight of temptation is to never give in to it. Because there's a sense in which every time I give in to my temptation and sin, the temptation's over. Now, I've got a price tag to pay on whatever I just did or said, but the temptation is gone. The only way to know the full weight of temptation is to never give in to it because it continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And the weight of obedience becomes something not burdensome, because, but big and heavy. I think that's why Jesus, when he walked into the garden, when he was about to die for our sins, one of the passages of Scripture in the gospel says he just was almost crushed to the ground under the weight of what he was carrying. 
because he never gave in to temptation. He knew the full weight of what suffering and obedience were like in his life. Think of Abraham in Genesis 22. He was asked to sacrifice his own son as a burnt offering to God, the son of promise. And if you know that story, he took his son to the mountain, he put him, tied him on the altar, and it was there that God matched his faith with God's presence and with God's power and with God's deliverance. So why do we obey? Because obedience shows that we trust him. Obedience shows that we actually trust him. Whether we see the end or not, we trust him. So let's get serious about where this really matters for us today. Where do you struggle most to obey God right now? Where are you struggling most to obey God? Is it in your attitude toward others? Selfishness, discontent? Do you struggle most to stay stay sexually pure and honorable in your relationships? Do you struggle most to keep from any controlling behavior in your life? Are you having a hard time resting in God? Do you live in fear or worry? Where are you having the biggest challenge and struggle obeying today? Whatever that area of disobedience is, here are the steps you can take. This is what the New Testament tells us very clearly. First of all, the Bible tells us whenever we confess our sins, God's faithful and just and forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first step when we're having struggle in obeying is to confess to God that we're struggling. We're not believing. We're not trusting. And in that, we acknowledge and we encounter his forgiveness and his power. Another response is what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is, I was going this way, and now I'm going to turn and go the other way. And the sin that we talk about, we often think of the sin when we actually do the act of sin. Way before we commit an act of sin, there's a germinal attitude, there's a germinal wrong belief, there's a germinal thought that, that we allow to, we, we actually sometimes water it and fertilize it so it grows, and then it grows into that act of sin. So we repent not just of the act that I did, that I just gossiped about this person. We repent of the fear that I have that other people may not think well of me, so if I can get them thinking bad of this other person, I'll feel more safe. We repent of the deep heart issues in our lives. Sometimes it helps to talk to a friend, a group leader, a mentor about your struggle. Disobedience grows in secrecy. Secrecy is an incubator for shame and disobedience. Sometimes the best thing we can do is we can talk to someone, talk to your group leader, talk to one of our elders, pastors here, talk to uh, a friend you have, get in community together, join a, a group here. Like we talked about last week, community is essential in this victory over sin and on the path of obedience. So let me close by going back to Matthew 7 for a couple minutes. Jesus said the person who hears his words and ignores those words is like someone who builds a house on the sand And like that building in China, when the rains come, it's just going to fall over. But in contrast, anyone who listens to my teaching, Jesus said, and follows it is wise, like the person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise, and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on the rock. So contrast that catastrophic failure of that building in China with the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, over 2,716 feet tall, with more 160 stories in this building, 
tallest building in the world, with the elevator with the longest travel distance in the world, this building demonstrates what's possible when you build on the rock. Because it sits on a concrete mat four meters thick, secured to the rock and the earth by 192 pilings, more than 164 feet deep. This is what our lives will look like when we build them on the solid foundation of obedience to God. Let's pray. God, we need to be reminded of what obedience is, both in our attitudes and our actions, to be your people, to live these lives of love, to obey your commands, not just because it's a rule book to follow, but because it shows our love for you. It does help us. Life just goes better. It shows our trust in you. And it builds a foundation that's going to last. So forgive us right now for those areas where we're not obeying. Cleanse us. And even as we sing this last song, do the work by the power of your Holy Spirit in us to cleanse us of that and to empower us to walk in obedience in these areas. We pray that you would get all the glory and all the praise and all the credit for everything you do because we can't do it on our own. Amen.